Hey listeners, it's Andy, and I'm here to see if you've tried Audible yet. With an incredible selection of audiobooks, it is the perfect way to dive deeper into the stories upon which some of your favorite films are based. Audible members get a credit every month to redeem on any audiobook they like, plus access to a huge plus catalog of podcasts, originals, and more. Just imagine listening to the books that inspired movies like The Bourne Identity, Moneyball, or sci-fi classics like Dune. The best part? You can try Audible free for 30 days and get your first audiobook on them. It's a great way to experience storytelling while supporting this podcast. To get started, go to thenextreel.com slash audible or text thenextreel to 500-500. Listen to incredible audiobooks and support the show today. That's thenextreel.com slash audible. I'm Pete Wright. And I'm Andy Nelson. Welcome to The Next Reel. When the movie ends... Our conversation begins. In the heart of the sea is over. It's time to gather up your lance, mateys. How does one come to know the sea's dark secrets? Monsters. Are they real? I want you to tell me what happened. Tell me the secret of the Essex. I don't expect a writer to understand, Mr. Melville. Promise me to come back. I'll come back as quick as the summer's night, I swear. Normally a captain gets to choose his first mate. An experienced captain, yes. Centuries before, sailors feared sailing off the edge of the earth. for the edge of sanity. I believe you have seen things no one else has seen. Andy, we're talking about In the Heart of the Sea. We are, yes. Uh, today, and I think it's important before we get started to know that, to, to tell the people that if they watch this movie and they think, God, you're telling me this is a movie where I could go to the pretty spot? And they wonder, where is the pretty spot? Where would they go to find out? You know, the best place they could go is to head to thenextreel.com slash Discord. They could join all of us talking about movies over in our Discord chat groups and get in on all sorts of conversations about aquatic killers, about pretty spots, about <laughs> the pretty about spots. Any any movie related and entertainment related topic you could probably talk about. And even more. Mommy, I want to go to the pretty spot. <laughs> yeah. All right. So what were we talking about again? Uh the nextreel.com slash Discord. Well done. Well done. And now to see this movie andy aquatic killers this movie i don't know that i would have put this movie in the aquatic killers category because it it aspires yeah yeah that, i'm gonna go with that it <laughs> aspires to be more than an aquatic killers movie and so i start with that position wondering if in fact the movie transcends aquatic killers at all or if it's really just a glorified B movie with a big whale. You know, I, I can't help but feel that Ron Howard would have been better served if he just really pushed it to be 
a straight up aquatic killers monster movie. Like I can't help but feel like the movie would have been better if that's what he did. With right. It. I and I appreciate it. It's loosely based on a true story about the disastrous voyage of the whaling ship, the Essex, back in the 1800s. But uh, it just, it was, uh, I mean, it was, I mean, it definitely, I will say, there's definitely an aquatic killer. And I would also say that man is quite the aquatic killer also. I think man actually, potentially, is more of a killer in this movie than the sperm whale. Decidedly more of a killer <laughs> and uh, like kills each other and himself. And like, there's just a lot of man killing going on. And really, the whale is is sort of Superman in this story. <laughs> He's just trying to defend his his place. I will say, I think it's funny that we have now uh, seen several boats. And I, I guess it becomes a trope in aquatic killer movies when you have, you're in the water and what are people doing in the water? Well, generally they're going to be on a boat of some sort. And so it's inevitably you have the aquatic killers doing something to tip them over and knock them over. Because we have saw that right out of the gate in Tentacles that happened there. We saw that in mm-hmm. Piranha when the Piranha eat the all those strands of the boat and the little raft and it falls apart. Uh, we saw that in uh, well, Anaconda, we did see at the beginning when the Anaconda jumps in and kind of destroys the boat, like smacking into the bottom and everything. Mm-hmm. In Lake Placid, the crocodile flips the boat when they're like, I think it's a canoe when they're out there. Uh, it's hard. Flip. It's definitely something that you get quite a bit in these movies. Well, in this, you actually have whale bowling the boats. At one point, mm. the little boats, they're all lined up and the whale waiting for that strike. It's whale whale bowling. <laughs> um, I uh, so I, I think we have to ask the question now that we've added yet another aquatic killer to the list. Mm. Where does the crazy sperm whale line up in the, our list of of fears around aquatic killers? We started with the octopus, as you mentioned, then piranha, then anaconda, then monster crocodile. And now sperm whale how scared are you i feel like sperm whale is not at the top of my list i mean i feel i I certainly of the whales um it's definitely up there as far as one that i'm less comfortable to be around if i happen to be in the water next to a sperm whale than say a blue whale or a humpback whale i'd feel certainly more comfortable with those or a killer whale i would feel um less comfortable with but I think if I were at that point where I was in the ocean like that next to a sperm whale, my big concern would be drowning. That would probably be the greater concern. I feel like crocodile, I still, at this point, I'm going to put up at the top of my list. It's just the idea of those jaws clamping on you and pulling you under and twisting you around and gobbling you up. I think that's still right at this point at the top of my list. So the thing about sperm whales, when I look at... They're, I mean, they're big. They're large creatures, right? I get it. They're weird shaped. Why? Why would they be shaped the way they are? That's it's bizarre. Their, their jaw is always seems oddly small to me when I look at their jaw. Like it would just snap right off. You open up their mouth and it would just snap under. Yeah. But they're they're like they they strike me as like blue whales. Like they're, they're gentle giants. Of course, these are sperm whales. They eat big 
deep sea creatures, I was wondering, like, you know, what do what do sperm whales eat? They eat squid and sharks and skates and fish. And and so they they eat meat. They eat swimming meat. But they also spend most of their time very deep underwater. And nowhere on that list is man. <laughs> they don't, they don't well, eat a lot of, is that, of humans. But is that because they just, they're around squid and all these other things yes. more than humans? <laughs> yes. If we were also deep sea dwellers, I think we might be more of a target. But the other piece, the reason that makes whales completely non-threatening to me is because the entire reason the whale was threatening is because we are such asshats to whales <laughs> in this movie. That is why they are a threat because of things that we have done to the whales and are doing to the whales. And it's terrible. It's terrible that these that the hero moments of this movie are all built around killing the whales. And I don't I I get it. I get the culture and the time. It's fine. But but when you look at the whale, like it's only it really is just Superman for its underwater <laughs> for, is or it's it's more like Liam Neeson, right? You know, you're going to you're oh. going to threaten its wife and child. Yes. He's going to come after you. Like that's that's this, really what this person <laughs> This is a whale with a special set of skills, Tandy. I think you are exactly right. That is exactly. And and heretofore, it should be called Liam. Liam, the sperm whale. (laughs) I think think for the rest of this conversation, we will call it Liam. Most certainly, Liam, the sperm whale. So you you want to talk a little bit about sperm whales? Did you find anything that makes them more threatening than... Then well, maybe I'm... I mean, they they are certainly a kind of a, a randomly aggressive whale species. Like they will, at times, if you uh, are boating out there, sometimes it doesn't need to be protecting. You, you know, you, you don't have to come up against its family for it to kind of freak out. It, sometimes they do just attack boats because they can be a little aggressive. So there is that. But... Generally, you're not going to probably run into them too much. They do generally get to be about 65 and a half feet or 20 meters. That's generally the largest they grow. There are accounts of 100 foot sperm whales, but they've never been verified. It's just like the fish that, you know, the one that got away, that whole thing. From the actual stories of the people who were on the Essex, uh, because, you know, they they kind of gauged it based off of the size of its boat, which was an 88-foot ship. They said that after the whale rammed their boat the first time, it, it surfaced, and it looked to be almost as long as the boat. So they estimated it to be actually about 85 feet long. So again, hard to say. They were all in a state of shock, I'm sure. So I'm not sure I'm not sure if it was uh, really that big or not, but regardless, uh, sperm whales are, they are big and they can be a little destructive and angry at times. So, uh, and, and, you know, in context of this being a true story that went on to be the inspiration for Moby Dick, I guess I can see, you know, okay, I, I can buy into it a little bit. Yeah, and we should talk about the construct of this movie because I think it is it is interesting the way the narrative is set up, and uh, it, it's hard to hard to figure out who what kind of retelling of history this is, uh, and and mm. where the where the fiction starts. So we're definitely going to talk about that. Weirdly, yeah. though, this movie is kind of my sort of adventure, right? Like normally 
impossible odds, creature feature, man versus nature, man versus himself. I'm sort of puzzled why it didn't get more attention. And it didn't get more attention from me. Like, I I saw the trailer. I knew the movie was coming. I didn't see it. This was my first time with this movie. It probably was a trailer pick when we yeah. were talking about trailers at one point, because it seems like the the sort of thing we would have talked about. It totally looks like the sort of film that would be up my alley as well. I mean, yeah. I love Moby Dick. Moby Dick, I think, Moby is Moby Dick. It's. I was trying to get that accent right, Liam. like all the actors in the movie. <laughs> Just I was really working. On. <laughs> Liam by Herman Melville. <laughs> I, I I love the book, and I was really curious about this movie. And then I think it was just the when it came out, you just hear people talking about it. And it just was like, hmm, okay, maybe I don't need to rush out to watch this one. Right. So uh, I think that's what happened, which is a shame. But then when you watch it, you're like, nah, okay, it does. I mean, Ron Howard has been around uh, for a very long time making Hollywood projects. And there are times where it feels very Hollywood. And it fits in with what he does, I think, to that extent. I just feel like there have been certain periods in his life where he's excelled at making the quote Hollywood movie. And I don't think in this particular case he was excelling. And it's not like his direction was bad. I just think the script was, uh, it just, it, it just didn't engage for me. I just found the script to be doing exactly what they all felt like a Hollywood script probably needed to do. And because of that, it just like, it, I think this is probably why I didn't see it at the time. And now that I've seen it, I'm like, yeah, it's because it doesn't engage me. I think that's curious. I, Ron Howard, I do think Ron Howard is, you know, in many ways, an exceptional filmmaker. And and I think he knows this is going to sound really trite, but he knows how to how to do what he knows how to do. Right. Like he he has a certain role that he fits in the industry and his movies, when they land, they land so hard. Right. I mean, he can really uh, get that emotional connection and and make it taut. And sometimes he doesn't. And this movie, I, for me, I, there were so many things about this movie. It's one of those death by a thousand paper cuts films. Right. Where. You know, even if I'm forgiving some of the more tropey stuff and we have a healthy trope corner in this movie. Boy, do we. Even if I give forgive some of those uh, those tropey pieces, I am then reminded of what kind of a movie I'm watching when the mat work is terrible. When the accents are complete nonsense, like I can't get into the world and engage with the characters when those little things, right, the performative things, the CG things, the effects things don't work. And I will say some of the effects work incredibly well. The reveal of the giant yeah. uh, tail is Ron Howard dramatic, right? It is a great still shot. And well, clearly they loved it because it's, it's the poster. It's everywhere. The, right? the, the movie. It's everything. Yeah. Yeah. And and yet and, you know, so many of those shots, those hero moments really do land. Right. We I already made fun of the of the bowling whale thing. But that is a, a, a great sense of fantasy sort of scale in CG work. The city looks terrible. The the um, general experience of the human relationship with with the world of Nantucket it, it doesn't it it doesn't work. And so when I can't get through that stuff, it's really hard to lose myself in the third act when it when I it really needs me to. I mean, I agree with all of that, and I will say to to your point that. It, it, I mean, it's clear that they spent the bulk of their focus and energy and money, money on the whale and all of the 
those effects because those are great. Like I always bought into everything in that, like once they're out to sea, even the storm, I thought they did a great job kind of creating that storm in the tank and everything. I, I just felt like by the time we hit just everything in the beginning and then when we come back to it at the end, I'm just like, why do I feel like, you know, this is, I mean, this is, you know, just terrible CG work that they put together in, in that. And I just felt like they just weren't putting the money into that part of it. It's just one of those things. They, they, you know, they, they made choices. They clearly had, yeah, well, they, I mean, it's a whale, it's a man versus whale movie. So they're going to put their money into that part of it. It's just, yeah, it's rough right. when you have to start with such bad uh, CG work. You're like, oh, what, what am I looking at here? Like, these are like worse than, you know, painted mats that they were doing back in the uh, early days of film. And they're things that we know how to do. <laughs> it's not like it's yeah, not like we're trying right. to like it, it. It's not like we're sending I don't know the Apollo thirteen to space. Like we're not doing those <laughs> sorts of things for the first time. Like we we actually know how to make a cityscape. We know how to make great smoke. Yeah. We know how to make. We know how to line those up. We know we know a lot about water. We can we can make a coastline. I I struggled with it. You know what I think is harder than that though clearly, is what? the Massachusetts accent. Apparently, this film has now found the hardest accent for, to get actors to be yeah. able to pull off. Yep. Like, I don't think there was a single person in this film who was able to pull off the accent. And it was just all over the place. And it was so frustrating because I was like, what are, are they like, is he speaking Australian or is he trying to do it like an American? And no, no, there's a little Massachusetts twang in there. But I was just, oh, it was just rough all the time. There's a wonderful uh, piece in New York Times in the style section of New York Times. It's it's called How Should Black People Sound? And it is a it's a story of of like figuring out accent work for underrepresented communities. When when we have, you know, people from Nigeria who are being coached by white people who don't speak the their native tongue. And so they're it has nothing to do with like the Boston accent, but I love this passage in particular. Accent work can be startling. Think Robert De Niro in Cape Fear or confusing Keanu Reeves in Dracula or goofy Nicolas Cage in Con Air or inexplicable. John Voight in Anaconda. It can also be head-shakingly offensive and a self-sustaining fountain of cultural incompetence. And I think on that one, <laughs> they nail it. <laughs> <laughs> right? Uh, 100%. 100%. I, it, this movie is such nonsense. And if you don't think that accents matter and you've never seen this movie, watch it and tell me you aren't laughing at most scenes where humans speak in the movie. It is, I cannot let it, it's nails on a chalkboard bad when they try and miss it so many times. If they hadn't tried at all, it would have been right. a better experience. It was one of those where I kept asking myself, because I kept writing notes, and it's like every half page that I was writing my notes, it was once again, wow, these accents are terrible. And I just kept thinking they would have just served themselves better if they just had everybody just do a generic American accent or even just their original accents or something, you know, just like why try at that point? Because it just it was just sounding terrible. Do you know what I found myself longing for? The other Chris, mm. you know, they tell you, you got it. They tell you in the Coast Guard, Andy, they tell you, you got to go out. They don't tell you, you got to go back in. 
Right? That's, I mean, <laughs> he did okay. As, he as did much okay. nonsense as everybody thinks of that movie, which I think it's better than most people think. The accents actually were pretty darn good. That's the finest hours. The finest hours. That Chris is what I'm Pine. talking about. Yes. Chris Pine. Yes. Yep. So, uh, okay. Where do you stand on uh, on Ronnie Howard in terms of his his filmography? Do you feel like you're up to up to speed? I'm really close. I mean, I was looking through his filmography because I felt like I, I just like felt like gosh, it's been a while since I've really watched a Ron Howard movie because I kind of I felt like he kind of dropped off the radar or just you know the quality of stuff he was doing wasn't what I was wanting to watch. And then I was like, oh right, he did he did the Da Vinci Code trilogy. I forgot. Mm-hmm. I've seen all of those. The most recent of which was um, after this. It was um, uh, Inferno, Inferno, which was right. twenty. 20- 16. So it was right after this one. So I only missed Rush, which was his first time working with Chris Hemsworth right before this. I missed missed The Dilemma, which I maybe feel good about having missed. That one, I looked at him like, what is this one? I had totally forgotten that he directed this, <laughs> this strange comedy with yeah, Vince Vaughn and Kevin, Kevin James. James. Yeah. I, I looked at the poster and I'm like, wait, this was a Ron Howard movie? Yeah. Apparently Weird. so. Totally, totally missed that. So uh, I haven't seen that. And then his very first two films, I think I missed those. It was uh, Grand Theft Auto and uh, Night Shift. Although I feel like I've seen part of Night Shift. I, I might have seen the full thing. I just can't remember. Night Shift. That was uh, Henry Henry Winkler, was that? Yeah, and Shelley, um, Shelley Long, I Long, think. Shelley Long, yeah. And Michael Keaton. Yeah, I've seen that. I've seen Night right. Shift. And it was a it was a fine comedy. I'm actually with you. I've I've seen almost all of them. I missed I did not see the I see Dilemma. I haven't seen a lot of the TV things like Take Five. Um I I oh, loved yeah, I'm just uh, movies yeah. movies like Frost Nixon. I really loved A Beautiful Mind. I think uh, I need to watch it again. Um it hold I think it holds up. Loved Ransom. I thought that was great. Apologies to uh, for <laughs> Mel Gibson. Um the paper is a is a favorite. I love it. It's a great, fun sort of fantasy newsroom. I I also think he did the uh, the Beatles documentary in 2016 that was quite good. He's he, he is a fan, and uh, and I thought that was great. I actually think Solo uh, aged well, and especially in light of the final trilogy. I think, I, and I don't think I'm alone. <laughs> a lot of people revisiting Solo and like, you know what? It actually came out okay. <laughs> Um, yeah, right, right. I, based on the uh, Dan Brown adaptations, I look at some of the stuff that has been announced that he's going to be directing, or one in particular that stuns me, and that is Seven Eves, which is a, it is easily the most audacious work adaptation that he will have ever done. It is based on a Neil Stevenson book that was extraordinarily big. And I I don't know how the Ron Howard treatment is going to do for a book like that. It And the reason I bring that up is because I kind of feel like that's what we have here in terms of the adaptation of the original book. So when you talk about a great big story like this, this man versus nature story, what do you know about the original work and the the story of the Essex and how well this movie actually tells that story? Well, I mean, it is based on the book of the same name written by uh, Nathaniel Philbrick from 2000. Uh, and he had actually pulled a lot of information from the actual uh, writings that some of these different people involved in the um, in the 
this incident with the whale um, and the getting stranded at sea, all that sort of stuff. I think it was um, like like the film, it was uh, Nickerson that he largely pulled from, but also Owen Chase, he actually also published um, a book about what happened. And so he pulled some information from both of those. And I want to say that, um, was it the captain also wrote something? I can't remember. But anyway, he got a lot of information from a lot of different sources. And in context of Hollywood writing scripts, I just felt like they made a lot of choices in the writing of the script that just felt like such Hollywood um, story uh, changes that I'm like, did they need to do that? Like making him like it was it was emphasized over and over in the film that Chase he's a, he's a, I don't know what you call him a landlubber basically right he was he's he wasn't born on the sea like like uh, Pollard and his family line and all that whereas that's completely fabricated they just wanted to kind of build that in to kind of create this this uh, more. Uh, antagonistic relationship between between him and the captain. Likewise, the captain, wow, I mean, they really emphasize in the film that he's not skilled at all and he's only getting the job because he uh, is from the right family, a, a whaling family. And this was definitely the time where a name really would bring stuff in like that. That was also completely fabricated. He all he was very much a guy who had um, worked on this very boat a lot and had all the skills needed to be captain. And it was uh, definitely something that he uh, justly deserved. Also, I think that they overemphasize the antagonistic relationship between Pollard and Chase and the fact that Pollard tells his crew to just go off into this storm and and it's just this ridiculous thing that he does and and only chase can save the day by you know climbing up onto the to the masts and cutting the lines and all that stuff that just seemed so hollywood the way that oh, it was he's constructed he's a real monkey acrobat that chase. <laughs> well I was like, well, this is why Hemsworth is in the movie yeah it, you know he wants to have a chance to do those heroic things of course but and, you know, just I think there were a lot of things between the different characters like Chase at the end of the film kind of has a, a, a change of heart and he doesn't want to go whaling and he quits so that he can just be a merchant uh, captain and just sail along the coasts and be a family man, which is completely not true. He is really the one who was uh, a whaler at heart. And by the end of the film, it talks about how it's it's Pollard who is the one who goes back out, uh, but really Chase is the one who's like very driven to kind of keep pursuing this whale, and uh, so it just it's it they really change a lot to make all of this happen, and of course even with the whale they, they change stuff there. I mean it certainly didn't seem like it struck the ship with just one blow, and that was pretty much it. But I mean a lot of it is true. Oh, and another thing that I thought was really interesting because I mean we dip into cannibalism in this film. Dip. As all these everybody's people on getting the boat. eaten. <laughs> everybody's getting it's a eaten. Real and it's not just waiting for them to die. It's like, okay, let's kill this guy, eat him. Right. There's quite a bit of that. But apparently, because uh, they make a big deal about that and how how distraught Nickerson is as an as an older man telling his story uh, to the young Herman Melville about how awful it was and all this sort of stuff. When in reality, the idea of cannibalism at this particular point in time, particularly in a community like this, like an actual whaling community, is that 
the the people actually it was part of a seafaring life because if you get stuck that's what you do to survive and so it really just said that there really wasn't a particular social stigma in communities that were tied as closely to the sea as Nantucket was so I thought that was very interesting. Well, and and you even get that that scene where they've drawn straws and the captain is draws the short straw and it was his his cousin mm-hmm. who essentially is the no eat me scene. Um, and uh, <laughs> <laughs> and we have the great Catelyn Stark, the white Mrs. Nickerson, who <laughs> played by the wonderful uh, um, uh, Michelle Fairley, who says you know, who jumps in on that line as we are back in the present and says, uh, wait. You ate each other? I would have loved you even more. Right. (laughs) I'm just exhausted by these these emotional beats at the end. Like it's just too much. Once you get they get home, it just feels like I just need this movie to wrap up. Like it just it feels like it climaxes in the middle. That was another frustration I had. And you know, it's hard when you're doing these based on true stories. And again, this might be why Ron Howard might have just been better to take all this information and make a B. A creature feature out of it because it feels like okay we've got this and now we still have half a movie to go of these guys stuck on boats and it just really plods along for that second half and i mean the whale's still there and bothering them and stuff but it just seems like it's taken forever and then by the time they get back to nantucket and you've got that whole thing of uh you know are they going to admit what happened that it was a whale and all this sort of stuff and and uh it just it was written with such you know purposeful a dramatic kind of uh, that hollywood bigness of chasing i'm going to tell the truth pollard you better tell the truth too and pollard's dad is saying don't you tell the truth or you're going to destroy our industry and of course it just plays out just like hollywood wants it to yeah. but knowing that i mean just reading about this it's just like this was a community that was used to these stories and Paul, both Pollard and Chase were like thrilled to tell this story and we're always talking about it and it was just one of those things and I think I think that the movie way over dramatizes it and by the time you get to the end it's just like oh just end this movie already well and this I think otherwise would lead us right into some our fantastic trope corner but I do want to talk about some things that the movie I think does exceptionally well in in telling the story we because should, there are because a couple <laughs> things been, that are exhilarating we've been rather negative we yes, really have, absolutely. yeah. I, I, and I don't know. I, I should say, given everything else that we're talking about here, that are that that maybe isn't accurate. Uh, it, it should lead us with a certain sense of skepticism into some of these things. But I'll tell you, the way they handle <laughs> the operation of a ship, right? The exercises that they do, and sails, and unfurling, and masts, and things like that. I think was great. I loved watching the crew at work on the ship. Yeah, I did too. And and that was something that I really loved about the book Liam. Yeah. I loved how it explored <laughs> explored all of that. <laughs> You're talking about Liam by Melville, right? Yeah. Right. Liam by Melville, right? Yeah, Melville's I classic. loved the exploration of just all of that world of whaling, which is a horribly disgusting yeah, um, world, but it's also really fascinating. And obviously it was an intrinsic part of of moving society forward. So I get it. It 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 was something that was just happening. I'm looking at it with with modern eyes and um, it just but I love the way that they depict it and they don't really do it at the level that Melville does in 
um, in the book. But I, I mean, that book, you feel like there are chapters where I feel like, wow, I just feel like I learned everything I ever needed to know and more about actually, you know, catching and killing and cleaning out a whale. I mean, it, they really go into it in the book. Um, and here, but I still feel like there's a lot of stuff in here that they that they really show you. And it's it's really insightful and interesting. And I thought it worked really well. Yeah, I, I did too. Even, even Spider Monkey Thor climbing the mast was, he was, you know, I, I actually <laughs> like when he finally does the thing and it unfurls. But I have to believe that anybody else on that ship, there, there's nothing in there that makes us feel like they're all idiots. Like this is a crew of idiots. <laughs> this is, you know. They, That's it, the danger of doing yeah, things like that, yeah. Right. Nantucket sleigh ride, I think, was really fun. I like the the act of demonstrating how, how what happens when you're whaling. Those were the moments that I really liked, yeah. like when they do the Nantucket sleigh ride, and, and yeah. you get this sense of that. And you know, even it it felt a little Hollywood just to kind of depict it, but I really did still enjoy the way that they actually have it. Where okay, here's a whale who's diving, and how are you going to still manage to capture this creature that lives underwater? And they happen to have like really long ropes, and they kind of wait the whale out, getting ready to cut the line if they have to in case the whale stays under. Yeah, um, but just watching all of that, and then the whole thing, which I thought was beautiful in its disgustingness is that when they call chimneys of fire when the clearly like the blood has gotten into the whale's lungs and it's dying and it, mm -hmm. it blows its spout and it's just a spout of blood like going up into the air and covering yeah. everybody in in blood i thought that was actually a really interesting and beautiful um in its kind of depiction of the horrors of whaling but really interesting i will say i was frustrated with the film depicting all of that with very much modern sensibilities and i don't know if they should have like you cut to tom holland as he gets sprayed with the blood for the first time and he just is like in horror and i just couldn't help but feeling like mm, would they have been feeling that way back then or would they have been super excited and i just i don't know i i just i felt it was too modern i agree with that and i think that the challenge there is that they've already set up tom holland's character young nickerson as being an orphan without a job right he is yeah. he's an orphan at work on a whaling ship and in a struggling economy and he i i just don't think he would be that horrified besides by giving him that moment, that hero grief moment so early in the film, it really detracts from the moment later when Chase does not throw the giant spear at the whale where everybody's yeah. yelling, throw the spear. But for some reason, he has that bit of of connection with the whale and decides I'm not going to I know I see you, Kal-El. I'm not going to throw my spear at you. Right. Mm. Like there, there is that moment of of like experience that I think is made stronger if we don't get the feeling that everybody else is having a hard time with their job. Yeah. So. Yeah. Although it did make me really want to uh, <laughs> just I, I, I was very curious that they had that moment where they're I mean, they're really showing the whaling and here he is now having to crawl inside a whale's brain just to scoop out all the gold, oh, as they call God, it, you know, was... just those those the good bits inside that, uh, you know. It's like the the extra juicy stuff they just can't get out otherwise <laughs> with their buckets. It was it yeah. was gross, but I get it, and I love I do actually love that they brought in the um uh the the moment where we have you know I hear they found oil in the ground. <laughs> Can you imagine? 
I thought that was really uh, great. I thought there were some really great uh, pieces to that. So I wanted him when he was crawling inside to just say, and I thought they smelled bad on the outside. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Let's talk about some uh, of yeah, the tropes yeah. uh, at work in this movie. What are your favorites? Oh, well, I feel like we've talked about quite a few of them already, but I, you know, I, I think, I mean, in the scale of tropes, I mean, there's a long list of them, the animals not to scale trope, which we've certainly talked about a lot in this particular aquatic killer series since I, I think all of them have been not to scale thus far right. in the, in this particular series. But, uh, you know, just the, you've got the, the whole thing about it's not my fault. It's never my fault trope, right? You know, with the whole battle after the storm, it's not my fault. It's not your, it's not my fault. You know, that yeah. whole battle that yeah. they have, things like that. Uh, did you have a favorite one? Uh, well, I mean, the drift apart at sea was was fun for me because they literally are in boats drifting apart and the way and, and they have had uh falling out in their relationship and i mean the drift apart was cemented ronnie wanted us to know that these two people were drifting apart and uh, i thought that was great mm. but even better was the uh the animal curb stomp fight where the whale beats the ship in like a minute <laughs> they're just yeah. destroyed um toast. is yeah. toast and it is a it's it, it is very tropey, great trope. Also, a great effect sequence. I think they actually, you know, they destroy the boat. I think compellingly, and I, it looks great. Um, and you know, to your earlier point, it sets the the massive kind of effects climax way too early in the movie, and and leaves yeah. us with a life of pie for the entire half, last half. Yeah, right. I, I just also have to say, possibly my favorite. <laughs> trope which apparently actually happened is that you have the outrun the fireball trope in this you have the shot underwater of chase our hero he had he dove into the essex as it was sinking to to uh, get some navigation equipment out of the boat and uh, that but had to get back out before the boat blew up because all the whale the melted down uh, blubber was uh, catching fire and the whole ship was about to blow. And of course, he dives underwater just as it explodes over him. And But apparently it really did happen by the ship's steward. So there you go. The ship's steward was, you know, they should have given it. Should have been it. about the ship's steward. Because yeah, the whole right? thing should have been about that. <laughs> We've already talked about uh, the uh, hero antagonist, which is the whale, Kal-El, Liam, who yes. is actually protecting his family. <laughs> uh, we've got the historical hero upgrade and the historical villain upgrade. We've talked about both of, of those uh, elements. Um, and of course, we have the jerk with a heart of gold. And um, it, it's just... We do, his cousin. right? Yeah, yeah, he's just terrible, but he does get the eat me moment at the end and uh, sacrifices his life. Uh, he does. Yeah. Yeah, tvtropes.org. They are a, a great source of finding all the tropes you could ever want and more. This page is really long. Of There's trope. a lot. There are so there many. There are a lot. Yeah. There, yeah. there is one that actually bugs me, and I'm only bringing it up because I've been thinking about Jaws and Michael Caine, is the super persistent predator. So do we have a sense of whether or not sperm whales are known to track their prey across the sea? <laughs> <laughs> I can't... <laughs> 
I, you know, I can't help but feel like there's there's this there's this old joke that I heard uh, when I was a kid, which always cracked me up. It's it's you know, there's this this farmer on this little tiny scooter, and this this guy in this really nice new truck. And he kind of looks at this farmer and his scooter is like, oh, that thing's not going to, can't go very fast. And as uh, they both start leaving at the same time, the guy, the truck gets in and and the, and the he starts driving. And then all of a sudden the farmer on his little scooter goes zipping past him. And he's like, what the heck? And so he goes faster. And then the farmer goes zipping past him again. And he goes faster and the farmer zips past him. And so finally he stops and he asks the farmer, he's like, how, how do you go so fast on that thing? And the farmer's like, well, my suspenders got caught in your door. <laughs> Terrible joke, terrible joke. But it does make me think maybe this whale was stuck on a rope attached to the boat all this time. It just <laughs> couldn't it just couldn't get free. And all of us trying to do so I just need to get this rope off of me. You just fixed the movie. <laughs> that was it. That's all I needed. That's all I needed. Heart of the in the heart of the sea, five stars and a heart. <laughs> It is ridiculous by the by the end that that this giant whale is still tracking their boat on the surface of the sea. I just I, I feel like that is one of those things. And then when we when we talk about the framing device of this movie, where we're telling the story of Herman to Herman Melville in the in our movie present, and then Melville acknowledges in his final words, "Yeah, I'm going to take some of this stuff, but I'm going to make a lot of it up." That it turns out I, I'm sitting there questioning the value of me spending my time with the Essex. Why not just <laughs> make Moby Dick? Like, I don't get the point of Melville being in this movie at all. It is a it, it's a framing device that doesn't pay off at the end. And it was a frustrating framing device. I was really irritated when it's Nickerson's story. We have him start talking about this. And it's a hard, he doesn't want to do it. He finally is convinced because of the money and they're broke and all this stuff, yada, yada. Uh, just a bunch of this silly backstory for your framing device. It's yeah. like, do we need a backstory for our framing no. device? It was very frustrating. But um, the thing that really irritated me was that as soon as he starts talking, he's like dipping into Chase's like past like okay chase his wife and his wife's pregnant and she's going to have a kid and he's talking about oh it's going to be a little boy oh i think it's going to be a girl and, you know all that's all that stuff that they're doing and i'm like why would nickerson know any of this and so i get really frustrated with these framing devices when it's just like there's no reason that he would be that telling he would know that part of, that of the stuff. story in the first place yeah, it's it just it just doesn't make any sense. So that was frustrating. And so to that end, I just I didn't need to have this framing device built in at all. I mean, I'm fine with the story of the Essex. I think it's an interesting enough story, even if I just don't think it was scripted as well as it could have been here. I just it, the framing device. Um, yeah, it just like I'd rather just, you know, have the whole movie. And then at the end, you have Melville sitting in a chair and he's reading the paper and goes, hmm, and strokes his chin. You know, I mean, maybe that's all we got. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> Melville is played by Edward Snowden. It's a really important kind of callback. Uh, yeah, no, I, I actually like that. It was a good excuse to get Brendan Gleeson in here. And how delightful to have back-to-back Gleeson creature films. Right. I know. I thought about that. I'm like, hey, he was just in Lake Placid. What yeah. a thrill. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I, I would rather have that character have showed up in this movie, frankly. That would have been fine. More Twinkies. That's that would have been great. That would have been great. What else do you want to talk about? 
I, 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 should we talk about some of the cast? Let's, uh, is there any cast? We've talked about Chris Hemsworth. Benjamin Walker was an interesting uh, actor as George Pollard. I guess some other options were Benedict Cumberbatch, Tom Hiddleston, or Henry Cavill, but Benjamin Walker. Um, got the role, and I thought he was actually pretty interesting. I don't, I don't think I'd seen anything he'd been in, but, um, uh, but I enjoyed him. I did too. I thought he was a great um, sort of foil for for our fair Hemsworth. Yeah. Hemsworth, yeah. I thought yeah. he was great. Um, he was in Flags of Our Fathers, so I have seen him. I just don't remember him at all in that one. <laughs> Right, right. And, and don't forget Abraham Lincoln, Vampire Hunter. He was actually Abraham Which Lincoln. I never saw. I know. I wanted right. to see that. I did. I, I actually really like him because I'm a big Jessica Jones fan, and so he was. Uh, he was in Jessica Jones. Eric was he in season Gelden, two uh, of Jessica Jones? Um, he was. No, he was. He was only in season one. No, season three. He was in season three. I'm getting my seasons oh, then, mixed yeah, up. Then there's no reason. There's no reason you would see him, him at from all. that movie. Yeah. yeah, yeah. But otherwise, I mean, I I do enjoy the cast here. Killian Murphy as you, Brenton Gleeson, you already mentioned Ben Wishaw, uh, Tom Holland uh, before Spider Man, which I thought was fun to see him working with with Chris Hemsworth here. And uh, you know, honestly, Tom Holland is the best accent in the movie, and he always is the best accent. Like he's, I I think he is able to to conjure accents across his movies and he's only getting better i enjoy seeing him i i enjoy him as spider-man but i really do enjoy seeing him outside of that also i think that he's an interesting actor to watch so me too what about behind the behind the scenes any interesting bits with the uh kind of getting this made and the crew and stuff oh you know i did find it interesting just as far as the backstory barry levinson apparently started developing this back in 2000 uh, and uh, apparently something fell off there because uh, you know 15 years later they finally get this thing made yeah uh, i this would have been a different barry levinson movie for sure i um in terms of just the production of it i struggle with the camera and i think maybe this goes back to some of our effect mm. sequences they they set up this thing very early on in the movie where we've we're going to do some incredibly deep focuses right we're going to have some extreme close-ups with some device in the foreground and someone hand is going to reach in and grab it you know and and that plays throughout the film uh, all the way to their you know deserted island experience where we have really close like rock or bush to the camera and somebody trips over it or something you know they're on the beach far away and it didn't play well for me in this movie. I found it sort of a weird, jarring, kind of dizzying effect. Um, a lot of the uh, angles that they used were just puzzling for me. They seemed sort of purposeless yeah. in a movie that demanded wide, like, show me the scope of what you're doing. I think the choice to go as close and as off uh, axis as they did um, did not service the script as well as I think I'd, I'd hoped. A lot of unmotivated shots that just, I mean, they looked interesting, but I'm like, why am I getting a GoPro-ish shot at the end of an oar mm -hmm. as, they're, as they're rowing through the water? I'm like, I just, I don't get this. Uh, and so there was a lot of that throughout the film. And it just, it did make it rather frustrating because I just, I couldn't piece together why they chose to shoot it this way. I mean, he had worked with Ron Howard on Rush and was before that a rather big Danny Boyle uh, cinematographer. 
And, um, you know, he's done some good stuff. Like, I love Dread. I think that the cinematography was great yeah. in that. I just felt yeah. like in this particular film, I felt like maybe it was Howard who was a little uh, at a loss as to how to energize this film that he knew kind of climaxes in the middle and was trying to figure out what can we do to amp to en- give it some energy. I mean, that's all I can think of because it just felt like it was interesting. But I'm like, why is, why is it happening this way? I don't know. That was Anthony Dodd-Mantle, who was our uh, DP in this. Yeah. Well. Yeah. Odd. 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 It, it it did look great on the locations. They filmed a lot, filmed a lot of this in the Canary Islands and off the Canary Islands in uh, over in Spain. And I'm assuming part of that is because it was a Spanish co-production. And I assume that's also why Roque Baños came on as the composer. Hans Zimmer is usually Ron Howard's go-to person. And I guess it sounds like they went to him. And I don't know if he was just busy or something, but he's the one who actually recommended Baños. Um, so I don't know. I don't know how that worked, but I did think it uh, it was nice to see Roque Baños doing some music for Ron Howard. And I, I, think, I think the score was great, too. Does some great music. Yeah. 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 Great really stuff. Lovely, really lovely, engaged. Uh, I thought it was great. Yep. Um, where, when do we have uh, the, in the Heart of the Sea 2, the whales return? <laughs> Liam's, Liam's, Liam's Liam. It's about the calf. It'll, it'll be, it'll be uh, <laughs> with Chase's child, who's yeah. now living in the Caribbean. And uh, the whale's the, the, calf the, the whale, is now yeah, circumnavigating him. Yeah. And they're like, why is there a, a sperm whale here in the Caribbean? <laughs> and why is that it. anaconda riding it? <laughs> and, and why is Michael Caine in this movie? <laughs> Where are we going with this? You know, there was another version of this story, though. It was The Whale. It was a a BBC One TV movie back in 2013. Um, I I didn't recognize any of the names. It looked like it also played on Animal Planet, so they might have been taking a little more realistic depiction of the story. Uh, Martin Sheen, he played old Nickerson in it. Um, So that's the only version of this story. But, I mean, Moby Dick is a pretty popular film. There have been enough versions of Moby Dick, not to mention films that take that Moby Dick idea of a Captain Ahab character who is just kind of has this this need to pursue something, the the yeah. uncatchable. Right, right. How to do it award season? Well, it wasn't a big one. <laughs> I, it just so many things speak to where this film settles. It did have one win, though, and five other nominations. The one win was at the Heartland Film uh, Festival, I think. Um, They won for Truly Moving Picture, but so did all the other 10 10 nominees. I don't know if this is just a place where they just give everyone, like, you win if you get nominated. Like, I don't know, but all... (laughs) Right, exactly. All 11 nominees got an award for uh, the Truly Moving Picture. (laughs) So it's like, so it's one win... (laughs) Okay, I think maybe there should be an asterisk on that one. Uh, The other nominations we had at the Teen Choice Awards, it was nominated for Choice Movie Action, which lost to Deadpool, which I think is funny for the Teen Choice Awards. But it's only the 18 and older ones who are voting on that one. I'm sure, Pete, I'm sure. Yeah. The uh, Choice Movie Action... Right. The choice movie action actor Chris Hemsworth was nominated but lost to Dylan O'Brien in Maze Runner, The Scorched Trials. And the choice movie actress Charlotte Riley, who played um, old Nickerson's wife, she was nominated, which really surprised me that the teens would vote for her in. But uh, she lost to Shailene Woodley in Allegiant. 
At the Visual Effects Society Awards, it was nominated for Outstanding Supporting Visual Effects in a Photo Reel Feature, but lost to The Revenant, which I totally understand. And the Young Artist Awards, the best performance in a feature film for a supporting young actor aged 14 to 21, Tom Holland. He was nominated but lost to Forrest Goodluck, also in The Revenant. Also one I wouldn't argue with. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Yeah, I guess that's uh, that, that, that says a lot. But no Razzies. But no Razzies. <laughs> That's something. So that counts for something. Right. Sure. How to do it at the box office. Well, Howard's Moby Dick prequel was a pricey endeavor. They spent $100 million to get it realized, or $108 million in today's dollars. The movie was slated to be released in March 2015, but then Warner Brothers decided to convert it to 3D and give it a higher awards chance by pushing it to later in the year. It ended up getting released in New York December 7th, 2015, before its national release December 11th, 2015, opposite the big short, and just ahead of Star Wars The Force Awakens. It opened in the number two slot behind The Hunger Games Mockingjay Part 2 in its fourth week, but it was not able to hold on at all as it fell out of the top 10 by its third week. The movie earned $25 million domestically and $68.9 million internationally for a total of $101.4 million in today's dollars. That puts the film at an adjusted loss per finished minute of $53.8 million. Didn't seem to hurt anyone involved, but uh, it certainly was a disappointment, especially for Warner Brothers, which was saddled with two big flops this year between this and Pan. Remember that one? Right. No, nobody does. (laughs) Wow. (laughs) Oh, yes. Oh, yes. That's where we are. I I think we need to uh, I think we need to take it to the mat immediately. I think we should. I think we should. Head over to flickchart.com slash the next reel. You'll see all the movies we've talked about on this show. If you swipe over in your show notes, you'll see uh, the word flick chart. If you just tap it, it will take you straight to this movie in the flick chart catalog where you can add it to your list and see how it stacks up against ours. Before we rank this, I just have to call out one other thing that I really did enjoy in the film because the, as Flickchart popped open, it's the movie poster where it's not the tail. It's the one where it's the the shot of the side of the whale and you get the big eye and there's yeah. the person underwater with a spear like right there who looks like it's almost smaller than the eye. It's kind of ridiculous perspective. But I did want to say I did enjoy the camera work when it actually was like whale cam or it felt like there was some really interesting perspective of whales that I thought was really interesting. And I I really enjoyed those aspects of the camera work. And I really enjoyed that moment with the whale eye as it was just looking at Chris right there at the end. Totally. I thought that was actually... So I liked the whale work in this film. Yeah, I I think the whale work is is great. And that poster is absurd. There are a couple of those. It's, I mean, it's, (laughs) it's great and absurd. And he's, it's, yeah. How it's like Pinocchio. How did you yeah. get there, little man? Uh, <laughs> right. It's, yeah. So. It's totally right. like Pinocchio. It's it's straight out of Pinocchio next to um, the big whale, Monstro. Yes. Yeah. yeah. That's right. All right. In the Heart of the Sea versus Il Postino, the Postman. Il Postino, the Postman. I will say Il Postino, the Postman as well. Next up, we have In the Heart of the Sea or La Femme Nikita. La Femme Nikita. I will say La Femme Nikita. In the Heart of the Sea or Lake Placid? Lake Placid. I'm totally going Lake Placid. Yeah, no, <laughs> no contest. In the Heart of the Sea or oof, The Little Drummer Girl? Ugh, in the George Heart of the Hill. Sea. Jeez. Yeah, no, In the Heart, in of, the the heart sea. of the Sea. Easy. Yeah. 
Easy. It's it's an easy. It still is an entertaining watch. In the heart of the sea, or the best little whorehouse in Texas. In the heart of the sea. I don't know. Dom DeLuise with that crazy hair. Uh, there is that courtroom <laughs> dance scene. <laughs> There's the courtroom dance scene. There are some scenes in that. I think I would actually pick that over in the heart of the sea. All right, let's do it. All right. One. One. Two. two three. Three. Rock. rock. Paper. <laughs> Scissors. <laughs> that was terrible. Uh, so Best Little Whorehouse in Texas takes it. In the Heart of the Sea or Windy and Lucy. Oh. I'm going to say Windy and Lucy. Sea. All right. Let's do it again. Here we go. <laughs> One. One. Two. two three. Three. Paper. Scissors. Okay. There we go. In the Heart of the Sea takes it. In the Heart of the Sea or Battle for the Planet of the Apes. I think you're battle for the planet of the apes. I am. I am too. I it, I would give it a lesser quality for sure, but still, yeah. it's, a, it's more fun. In the heart of the sea or Rocky Five. Rocky oh, Five. Rocky Five. That's the one with the doofus kid that he's training, right? Street fight. Yes, doofus. Um, I'll say Rocky Five though. <laughs> Rocky, it's Rocky Five colon like, the doofus. The doofus, totally. In the heart of the sea or the Danish girl. Oh, the Danish girl. The Danish girl. Well, that puts in the heart of the sea in spot 439 on our flick chart. 439 out of 476 or an 8%. Wow. <laughs> well, it's lower than it landed on my list. What did it do on yours? Lower than it landed on my list as well. Over on my chart, it ended up at, uh, if I could find it, it ended up in spot 2,386 out of 4,500, or a 47%. Mine came up against Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer. What do you do with that? <laughs> Pick Rudolph? Uh, uh, That's what <laughs> well, you do I did. with that. I, okay, I did. Good. That's what I did. Uh, mine came up at, at 1,063 out of 1,473, and that's a 28%. <sighs> You know, I, it, it was hard. It's it, If I go by the algorithm over at letterbox.com slash the next reel, this should be a one and a half star film. Uh, I think I can give it more than that on the whale effects alone, right? There's sure. a lot going crazy in this movie, but it's at least a two star for me because of the whale effects. And I'm leaning toward two and a half right in the middle. But I, I don't know. What about you? Convince me. Sway me. I, you know, I don't know if I, I want to. I think that's probably fine. For me, I feel like... I enjoyed it enough. Like, I, I think that there are problems left and right with this film, but all of the stuff at sea with the, like the, you know, the storm, the, you know, the chase of the whales, all of that sort of stuff. I mean, it's entertaining. And I was en entertained. The, all the stuff on the end really slowed things down quite a bit for me. Um, so I'm going to give it three stars, but I'm not going to give it a heart at all. I think it's a three star. It's it's a decent enough film, but uh, there's no love. All right, then I'm going to go with a two star, and and uh, and that'll that'll give us a two and a half. That'll give us two and a half on the show. That that and no up. no heart from you. No, I don't think so. Yeah, yeah. It's not a movie I necessarily. I mean, it's enjoyable enough, but it's not a movie I'm going to go watch again. Like I'm done. I'm finished yeah, with it. Right. I feel the same. So, I feel the same. All right. Yeah, and I feel, and that's what I feel frustrating with Ron and Howard because I feel like so much of his output has turned into that, and it's just like I feel like if there were more Apollo 13s, 
that type of work that Ron Howard is cranking out, I'd be much happier returning to his work. But I just feel like I watch these things. And I'm like, well, I never see that. Need to see that one again. Well, it'll be interesting to see what what happens with hillbilly elegy. I mean, we've it, it right. It could be very funny. We're doing that on the film board next uh, next month. This yep. month. This is already next right. month. This is next exactly. month. Though, for later, later this month. Later this month. Hillbilly elegy opens at uh, on November 24th uh, with Amy Adams and Glenn Close, and it looks like uh, looks like a hell of a movie. It looks like I mean, it's not a big budget effects movie but uh it just might um get us back to some ron howard storytelling that we like so yeah fingers crossed fingers crossed well next we're going to be we're going to be wrapping up our aquatic killers series sadly um but we're going to another mouthy underwater creature this happens to be some alligators quite a number of alligators in fact this is the alexandra aja's 2019 film Crawl, which features a woman and her father trapped in a house that is flooding during a Category 5 hurricane in Florida. And um, and now there's all these alligators that are just everywhere, just everywhere. And it's a fun ride. So we're going to be talking about that to close everything out. I'm really nervous about this one, Andy, because you know now we might be coming face to face with a super predator, a swarm piranha (laughs) of alligator like crocodiles and there i mean this this may be the hyper apex swarm predator that we've been scared of this whole time this might be be, this this might be the reason we did this whole series it might be we we (laughs) will likely have to do some sort of stack ranking of our entire like some sort of final four draft thing of who wins including our special guest the grandfathered in jaws right our great one in the final rank don't you think that that'll have to be absolutely i think we should try doing that it's been a real (laughs) roller coaster andy when the movie ends our conversation begins Amazon giveth, Andrew. As Amazon always doeth. I didn't. Amazon didn't for me. I went with the kids at Common Sense Media, and I, <laughs> I'm going to start because I got to... I, first, I want to celebrate this this kiddo who's 15 years old who wrote a one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight paragraph uh, review, three-star review that includes the following opening lines. This is not... This is me taking liberties with a bonus pick. Ron Howard's new dramatic invention is so confusing and complex that falls short of making a quality product. How is it actually the movie as complete? Many ways to define this project can be used, although it become countless ways, could be defined as the last work of the enigmatic director. (laughs) Sorry. Wow. It goes on from there extensively. <laughs> Again, 15 years old, I eat my hat. But I do have a 14-year-old who <laughs> says in four <laughs> lines what took us an hour and change to say. Three stars, 14 years old. Title, Whaley Descent. In the Heart of the Sea is a decent old-school survival flick based on the novel. The action is great, the visual effects and cinematography is astounding, the performances are good, and the story is okay. The problem is that the film drags at times. 
the three D is pretty good for what it was. Grade B minus three and a half stars. <laughs> wow. Okay. There it is. Just knows what it is. Who knows needs what more? it is. Pretty much Who what needs we, more. Pretty much uh, our thing, but shorter. <laughs> Well, I have a one star by Brian over at Amazon and Brian's, his review is not that exciting. It's really the title of his review that captures me. So I'm going to actually read them in reverse. I'm going to read his review first and then I'll give you the title. The review. Excellent. Horrible. I expected much more. Moby Dick is a classic, and they captured none of it. A major part of the story is that a true story of Moby Dick existed, the one being told of, but it was later written well as a matter of fiction to make it what it is today. In other words, the fiction was better than the real story being told. But the title of this review, Three Thumbs Down. (laughs) Three. Three. Three Thumbs Three How many down. does he have? I don't know where Brian got that extra thumb. Maybe so he was born with it. Maybe thumbs. he got it from somebody he <laughs> took it from. I don't know. But wow. apparently, all three of them are down. All of the thumbs are down. <laughs> He's a real sea devil. Thanks, Amazon. 